So welcome to this podcast. Uh, today I'm interviewing Keith Johnston. Now Keith has been a practitioner in the area of organizational change for many years, has held senior positions in global organizations, so has seen organizational change from many angles. Keith is also the author of one of the most fabulous and instrumental books in this area called Simple Habits for Complex Times. Now, my copy, if you could only see me now, I have to tell you, is heavily leafed and underlined all over the shop. Um, as those of you who are listening might know, I myself am an organizational change consultant, but I want to let you know this book changed everything. And today we have the co-author of that book. So we're going to go and peek inside about something about organizational change today. We're going to learn something about it that you just might find surprising. I know I did. It blew my mind when I read this book. So Keith, welcome to this podcast. Oh, thank you, Paul. Um, that was a glowing introduction. So <laughs> Wasn't it? I'll do my best to, yes. to that. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad to hear that. Maybe you could just tell us a couple of things about yourself first, Keith, just so um, the listener knows a little about where you are. We're on Zoom right now. The listener can't see that, but I can even see outside your window and it's an incredible New Zealand landscape I'm seeing. Yeah, I, I'm really lucky to live at, in a village called Paikakariki, which is a little village north of Wellington in New Zealand, as people mm. will be, astute listeners will be able to tell from my accent that I'm yes. a born and bred New Zealander. Um, and um, I've worked in the New Zealand public service as a leader, uh, I worked in uh, uh, at, in governance roles as the chair of of Oxfam internationally and in global NGO and and now I chair the leadership group of our little um, consultancy, which look is a leadership consultancy. It started here in this village with Jennifer Garvey Berger and myself and a uh, couple of other um, colleagues, and we've grown into being a global uh, leadership consultancy. Mm. And, and it's interesting chairing that group and and because that our organization we've tried to build on complexity principles in the sense that we've tried to um, keep it as distributed and as simple as possible with minimum specifications simple rules running it and we try and operate it mm. according to the ideas that we're working with and that's very different for example from my experience in Oxfam which was a global confederation which has a you know is, operates like a network and has all the strengths and challenges that that brings or mm. in in the in the government organization I ran or I was involved in running which was a a, um, which had been organized as a matrix and we had to reorganize it into a much clearer line management structure. And so just looking across mm. that spectrum of, of very different forms of organization has, I think, given me an appreciation that organizational uh, setups are contextual they're often historical. They may or may not be fit for the current purpose. And organisational change is very much contextual as well. Uh, and often we approach it as if there's a right answer rather than a kind of process of discovery to be followed. Wow. I'm going to ask you a question about that. Just before I do, could you mention the name of the consultancy that you are a chairperson now? Oh, our, our consultancy is called Cultivating Leadership. Great. So, leadership.com or. Yes, terrific. Life. I just thought that the listener may want to know that too. Yeah, so, sure. 
So you've made this first comment around imagining that leaders tend to think that there is the right answer. And um, where you tend to think that that may not be a great paradigm to bring. And so what alternative paradigm are you suggesting a leader take if they're not going to bring the idea that there is a right answer? And what, what's the problem with thinking there's a right answer? Um, so there's a whole lot of situations where there is a right answer uh, or there's a right enough answer and it's really valuable to be focused on either choosing it or in a process of discovery to find it. So mm. in those parts where the world is sufficiently predictable that I can look at the circumstances that arisen and I can categorize that it, it's, it's this kind of situation. This is a, this is a booking situation or this is a project management situation. Um, this is a, you know, resource organizations, whatever it is. And I can choose the standard operating uh, procedures. I can, go turn towards best practice i can use those to put in place uh the appropriate response and that's a really efficient way to be behaving um but and there are also circumstances where we want to do the research and find out what is the appropriate treatment for covid19 or what is the possible vaccine and and we we need to get more and more focused on what the right answers are in those circumstances and we need to do a whole lot of research and so forth so there's a there's an awful lot of benefit in our society that comes from the search for the right answer and those are what we might call situations that are in the predictable domain but a whole lot of our lives is spent in the unpredictable domain where there are so many variables in complexity, there are so many variables that we can't possibly know what the right answer is because there isn't a right answer to be found. We can't predict how the system is going to behave. All we can do is look for patterns. In the predictable world, the expectation on leaders is that we can predict what's going to happen, we can plan for it, and then we can put in place a series of milestones and we can control the organisation and its behaviour to get to those milestones. Mm. And we make, we, we add a great deal of value by doing that. Our lives are safer, um, more, uh, better resourced, uh, better planned and educated as a consequence of a whole lot of gains that have been made in that context. But then we take those tools, predicting, planning, and controlling, and we assume that when we're dealing with lots of people, when we're trying to change an organization, when we're trying to change a culture, when we're looking um, to get people in society to align as to what they're going to do in response to a crisis, that all of those things can be predicted, planned, and controlled for, and they can't. And we and and by by focusing on the on the right answer when there isn't a right answer to be found, narrows us down, and constrains us into a whole lot of arguments about what's right and what's wrong. Whereas in fact, what we could be doing is experimenting and learning as we go. So in the complex realm, we want to probe and test what the nature of this issue is. We want to probe and test possible responses to it. We want to look at ways we might be able to modify the patterns that we see and the way that the system's organizing itself to stay the same. What other patterns can we see and what other ways might we change how the system's going to behave? 
and then we, as we try things out and learn, then we can, we might then decide that there are some right answers to be found, but we're going to be continually evolving. And in organisational change, we tend to say, here's the destination in a year, the organisation's going to be like that. We often give the right answer. This is the new wiring diagram, and we kind of roll it out. Sometimes we use the word, we're going to socialise this. You know, it's wonderful. Or we're going to roll out this change like it's – I often think of large doors opening and the steamroller coming out, you know, and we're going to sort yeah. of deal with things as we go along. In fact, what we want to be doing is taking a more evolutionary approach because we're talking about people and how they're going to respond. We want to try things out. We want to be experiment at the edges, learn some stuff as we go along, and then make modifications and implement different things in, in different ways. Mm. So it's a different mindset for leaders. Um, you know, yeah. Mm. Now, uh, that, thank you for that. That's a very different mindset, isn't it? Although I've noticed, as you probably have, that more leaders are talking about this kind of approach than, than they used to. So people are generally, there's a, I notice there's a cultural shift towards talking about carrying out experiments in inverted commas, perhaps. But I've noticed, and I don't know about you, that in practice, it's, it's not an approach which has yet taken root in many organisations. There seems to be a bigger block or bigger, more fundamental set of obstacles toward, around taking on this, mind, this new mindset. What is the challenge to us in taking on this mindset? Why is it difficult for us just to start being experimental? Because if it was so easy probably organizations would have just started doing it wholesale years ago, but it's still a reg, you know, relatively marginal, marginalized approach, I think. What's yeah, so hard about it? Well, I think it's marginalized because it's not safe to do. Um, uh, you, you know, I mean, I think people in organizations, leaders, human beings in general, experiment all the time. You know, we try things out. We think, mm -hmm. oh, you know, I'll, I'll try it this way and we'll see what happens and then I'll try mm -hmm. it a different way. Right. So, so we're doing it all the time. In organisations, people tend to experiment under the radar uh, because it, it, they're not sanctioned. In order to sanction the experiment, I have to do a business case. You know, it becomes an initiative and it's no longer an experiment, you know, mm. because um, – mm. and, and so often you'll find out at the edges of organisations, you know, in the branch office somewhere or whatever, people take things and do things differently. And over time – a bright spot emerges. They they just they discover that something's worked really well, and then they perhaps try and scale it up, which may or may not be an appropriate response. Mm, mm. But it, but if if I've been trying something under the radar and it doesn't work, then no harm's done. It's safe to fail, and I'm not going to get in trouble. Whereas a lot in organisations, there is a fear that if I do if I experiment too publicly, then I'm going to get in trouble if it doesn't work. And, you know, David Snowden, who's one of the, the great complexity theorists, would say unless we're, unless we're trying 
enough experiments so that more than half of them are failing. We're not actually trying enough, you know. We're, and I, I notice this actually often working particularly with management consultants. When you, when you come up, when you get them to generate a whole cluster of experiments, they're very good at it. And then you run a process to get them to choose which ones they want to try out. They try and work out which ones will work, right? They, right. They, 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 they're trying to work out, okay, which ones are, are going to be successful because that's their, that's our instinct. Why would we try something if we didn't have any kind of sense that it might work? We're, well, we do it because we could learn stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and it'll teach us something whether it works or not. They're, all those experiments are successful because we learn things from them yeah. as opposed to, oh, we found the right answer. Yeah. And, and so I think it's very hard for people in organizations, and it's hard for people in organizations because they're usually these days spending other people's money, whether you're in government or you're in an NGO or whether you're spending the shareholders' money. Mm. And so there's somebody who's always concerned that says, are you spending that wisely? And mm. there's a constraint on whether or not it's, mm. it's, it, it, it's a thing that's safe to do, to, to, to experiment and, and to make mistakes. You did mention then a moment there in that um, description, Keith, that fear probably is part of it, that um, apart from all the structural impediments like organisations feel like they need to be judicious about the funds that they're using and so there's a natural cautiousness about spending money on things that they don't know will work. Sure. Um, but then there's the social impediment, as you said. People feel like, uh, well, I'm, I myself, to be frank, at the moment I'm working with an executive team and we're experimenting with ways of making their regular weekly meeting better. Yeah. And uh, what I'm noticing is a number of the things that we're trying aren't working. As in the team meeting hasn't actually improved yet. So now I'm feeling... Yeah just quite exposed in this. Now I'm learning a lot, but is it exposing? Yes. I'm the consultant that's supposed to know all this stuff. And I know a lot about meetings, but not everything I'm suggesting is actually working. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm totally with you there. I can tell you the number of times I've stood at the back of the room after teaching safe to fail experiments, anxious that, that, that it's not going well enough. Yes, that's right, Keith. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I found myself kind of really afraid that, that it hasn't worked. Yes, you know, yes. You know, because so it's a totally human response. That yeah, I, I've done I, in teaching. Now, I, I wonder whether I could ask you, now that's you and I just sharing <laughs> our own experience and our own how our own fears get provoked by doing things that don't appear to be working, but how important it is that we do it and how we need to foreground the priority of learning. So you've just mentioned there something about safe to fail experiments and you and in your book, you describe them in some detail and, and it's I wonder whether you could tell us now a little bit more about safe to fail experiments. What are they and how might someone go ahead and create one? What would be the criteria they would apply to know if what they were doing was safe to fail? What, what advice could you give them? Um, so it is really important to have sort of boundaries on them, to have some sense as to if we, if this doesn't, if this goes bad, then, you know, bad stuff will happen and we want to avoid that. So we, we, we genuinely want to make it safe because we, mm. because what we really want is to, for it to be safe to learn and we want to encourage learning. 
Um, so, so, so one factor is some boundaries that are guardrails that are protective, mm. uh, but, but, but we tend to make those guardrails too narrow because we get really anxious about, about the range of how things might go wrong. Mm. Secondly, we want to, we, we need to keep in mind that we're doing this to try and learn and to take things forward and to take action and to achieve, um, important outcomes. One of the, one of the really important things to bear in mind when working in complexity is that what I'm trying to do is to take us in a direction. It might be I want to reduce obesity in our society. I don't know the you know, there isn't a right answer for a program for reducing obesity, but there may be a whole lot of different things we can try out and we can learn as we go. In the predictable world, if I'm trying to build a bridge, for example, I've got a specific destination in mind. I can describe it. I can design it. I can put in place a series of milestones. So this distinction between am I going to a destination, building the bridge by a certain time frame, or am I trying to actually go in a direction um, and, uh, say, reduce obesity, um, though that distinction is really valuable. And, and in, in complexity, where we're focusing on, on experimenting, we're experimenting to go in a direction. So we want to have some boundaries. We want to have an idea about how we're going to learn from it. We want to have a direction that we want to go in and we're, and we're going to be experimenting our way towards that direction. And then along the way, um, it's really valuable to look at the edges of the issue. It's, all, it, it's very difficult to change organisations or systems or processes at the core of it. If you want to change your whole business planning system in an organization, people will have labored for years to build the business planning system. Many will have tried to change it. You know, there'll be a whole lot of organizational investment in it. But if you took, looked at the way they did business planning in a branch office and you tried something out, if you went to the edges of the issue or you, you took apart some of the aspects of the system and you tried out some things out there, then People don't have the same investment. It's fine. If you succeed, you can um, perhaps scale it up. If it doesn't work, you can go, oh, well, what have we learned from that? And on we go. This is this, this value of being kind of under the radar. But we're so um, inculcated from our MBAs and other things that in order to change things, I have to find the key leverage points and I have to then lean on the lever and, you know, at, at, at that point. Well, I have to um, do root cause analysis and so forth. All those things are about trying to get to a destination rather than trying things out and taking us towards a destination. Um, mm -hmm. And then the, the final thing I'd say is this is not like science experiments. It's not randomized control trials we're talking about here. This is trying things out so I or a group of us can learn as we go. And so you want them to be as cheap as possible, as simple as possible, and as quick as possible. You want to be really pragmatic about that. You, if you have to do a business case, if you have to get permission, then you've built something that's to, that's bigger than, than than what you need in the moment and you want to just scale it back and try and find what's the smallest thing that I could do here that could actually help us learn something. Well, thank you. In fact, just as you said that, I wanted to ask you, 
Over what period of time do you think it's good to apply a safe to fail experiment? Are you, for instance, should it just be one month or six months or something in between or a year or how long does, should a safe to fail experiment go for? Well, it's contextual, obviously, but, um, mm. you know, it might be five minutes, it might be five days, you know, it might be, it might be five weeks, depending on the context, but, but quick, cheap and pragmatic is are things you should be going for. You might, can I do it within my spending authorities, you know, rather than having to get permission for something? Yeah. You know? Yeah, and and absolutely terrific. And can I do it without having to get approval, write a business case and um, where if, if there is no impact or even if it's a negative impact, it's not going to bring the house down on top of me. And, or, and also, can I, can I, is it possible to do the opposite? You know, if, oh, yes. if we, if in, in the case of your meetings, for example, you know, and I'm not sure what you're trying, but, mm. but if, if we were, what if we tried, you know, having meetings more frequently? And then what if we tried having only once a month, you know, and we, what if we yeah. did, away, what if we did away with the meeting? You know, what if, yeah. what if we said to people, some people, well, you don't need to come or you choose whether you come or not, you know, how do we work out different ways of carrying it forward? And then we might try the reverse because again, it's not that we're trying, here's the, I think this might be the right answer and I want to prove it. It's what do we learn about the system when we try this thing out? And what do we learn about the system when we try something quite different out? And then what does that tell us and what might we then try next? Right? It's a, mm. it's, and, and so that's what part of why I want it to be quick is because it's not one thing. It's, it's mm. a stream of things of us learning as we go. And so the, the, in thinking about the change, it's really valuable to see how does the organisation self-organise? How does what are the things that hold it together? Yes. And and are we able to at the edges of that to nudge it in some way to alter some one or two or three of those things and to look and see what happens, and to think is that a change that might get amplified because people get excited about it, or is it a change? That is going to um, that is just going to die, you know, because it's there. We go again, you know, mm, and mm, and and mm. and the the essential um, culture, power structure, um, the ways the money is distributed, all those sorts of things yeah. will actually just hold it back into whatever configuration it was in previously. And so it's that way of thinking that I think starts us to, if we look at the patterns in this complex system that is the organisation, then we want to look at the ways these things hold things together and then what might we do to start to disrupt that and then how could we experiment to learn about that. Um, and to see whether the system, you know, is kind of open to that kind of change or, or how much it might, right. you know, because if I'm a new leader and I've come in and I want to really drive change through, I will see the system organizing itself as resistance, you know, and I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll talk about whether you're on the bus or not and all those sorts of things. Cause I'll see it as, as pushback. I might, from a different point of view, look at it and go, oh, that's the, that's the overall resilience of the system. That's its ability to deal with shocks and to allow itself to cope, you know, yeah. and, and to adjust. And, and what I'm trying to do is I'm either, in the end, I'm either making a decision which is, are we going to try and completely transform this way of it organizing itself, which is a, a, a big ask, but it might be mm. possible, mm. or are we trying to expand the resilience that's in the system so that it can actually deal with more shocks 
and 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 the answer that we might have for that might be quite different in different organizations yeah. or in different parts of the organization you know we might we might do away with some parts of the organization in order to over enhance the overall ability of it of the organization to adapt and to and, and, yeah. and go forward so we're making this decision to be how much are we looking to adapt or how much are we looking to transform and i think leaders are making that decision all the time um, mm. both in mm. themselves and also in in the organizations around them and at the moment with COVID-19, mm. as we move, if you like, as we start lifting our heads from the health crisis and start thinking about the economic crisis that accompanies it, mm. we're in this point where are we actually look? is this a transformation moment or is this an adaptation moment? And that right. answer will be different region mm. by region, country by country, economy. And, and some of those answers will be global and some of them will be very local. So, look, Keith, um, thank you so much. We've been speaking with Keith Johnson, who is the co-author, uh, author, along with Jennifer Garvey-Berger, to one of the books I just recommend to so many people. And today I've been, I've been really privileged to be able to interview Keith Johnson, and he's the author of Simple Habits for Complex Times. And um, it's a book that actually looks real life at organizational change. In fact, the stories in it, Keith, are so entertaining and interesting. Um, you and Jennifer just did a great job of, of weaving through examples of change. And uh, you build up, actually, for those who haven't read it yet, you, they actually build up the story throughout time. It's not just little anecdotes. It's actually a narrative, a fictional story that grows. So it's so elegantly done, Keith. And, thank um, you, Paul. Yeah, it's really, really something. And it's thank a great you. For, pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, it's a, a thank you. It's a great pleasure for me, and uh, I hope to talk with you again soon. Thank you.